Second Corinthians chapter nine, beginning in verse eight, Paul writes, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work as it is written. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In chapter 8 and 9, he has been dealing with the subject of offerings, sacrificial giving, generosity. We learned they brought the gifts to the church in chapter 8, verse 1, and that the gifts should come from the heart in chapter 8, verses 2 through 9. That gifts are measured in the sense of proportion to income in chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. Gifts should be handled honestly and with accountability in chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. The principles turn into promises in chapter 9. And remember... The principle of Christian giving is presented as a wonderful grace, not a burdensome obligation. And in chapter nine, Paul notes the blessings of generosity in verses one through five, both to ourselves and others in verses six through eleven. Stewardship and giving were intended to be expressions of joy to the glory of God. He is going to answer the very simple question. Why give? And in verses 8 through 15, he says we should give because we're enriched by God in verses 8 through 11. We should give because we meet needs and we bring praise to the Lord in verse 12. Number three, we demonstrate our deep loyalty to the Lord in verse 13. Number four, we build and strengthen prayer and love And fellowship in verse 14. And then finally, he says, we praise the Lord for his unspeakable gift in verse 15. These all amount to motives, reasons. And so again, in verse 8, it says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Some who want to give are told. Well, if you give, then you're going to have less. Paul writes. The opposite is true. 
With generosity comes the reality that you get more. And Paul proves that giving isn't fantastic or foolish, but factual. That sacrificial giving at first glance might seem unwise, risky. There's a voice that whispers in our ear, if I give, I'm going to have less. But Paul notes that God is able to make all grace abound toward us. God is able to pay back and we are given. And in the text, it's amazing. All grace, always. That means all the time having all sufficiency in all things. And when you read this word in the original language, it comes all like it's it's like a like a song, an abundance for every good work. Paul is speaking to the person who wants to be generous, but having second thoughts. They're, they're starting to do the budget. They're, they're thinking about the rent and they're thinking about the utilities and they're thinking about the groceries and they're thinking about the bills. And they know because in their heart of hearts and in their soul of souls, they want to be generous. And the Lord is in effect saying through Paul. Okay, I understand your heart and I understand what's motivating you and I understand that you really want to be generous. And I'm going to give you the opportunity. That's part of the point that he's making. So when he says that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, I want you to pause for just a moment And again, ask yourself a question or ask the text a question. What does Paul mean by that word grace? Is he talking about something physical? Is he talking about something spiritual? I'm going to suggest to you that I suspect it broadly means the favor of God. It means the blessing of God, the favor and the blessing of God in the broadest sense that you could possibly use that word. So that God gives and we participate in every good work. We are given more and more so that we can give more and more. But I'm going to suggest to you that the word probably means specifically in this context. Resources. Not just physical resources. But primarily resources. So grace incorporates monetary resources, but it's often used to describe other kinds of resources and other kinds of blessings. And grace bestows blessings. And so Paul is going to talk about this in the book of Corinthians. He's already talked about it in the book of Ephesians, where we are accepted in the beloved according to the riches of his grace. It says in chapter one, verse six, we are forgiven according to the riches of his grace in verse chapter one, verse seven of Ephesians. We are saved by grace. That is through his loving act, apart from what we are in chapter two, verses five. And then again, in verse seven, we are made trophies of his love through the exceeding riches of his grace. So we are forgiven by grace. We are saved by grace. We are trophies of his love by grace. We're privileged to be witnesses of the Lord by the grace given, it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. We are exhorted, encouraged to be channels of blessing 
to others by a consistent life that we might minister grace to them. It says in chapter four, verse twenty nine of Ephesians, the benediction of love in the book of Ephesians is grace be with you all. Through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter six, verse twenty four. So when Paul talks to the Ephesians about grace, grace means acceptance, forgiveness, salvation, reward, witness, channel of blessing, recipients of love. How do you take this word and apply so many different things to it? No wonder Pascal wrote to make a man a saint. Grace is absolutely necessary. And whoever doubts it doesn't know what a saint is or what a man is. So over and over and over and over again, Paul reminds the Philippians, the Ephesians, the Corinthians of the spiritual riches of grace in Christ in chapter one, verse five of first Corinthians of chapter four, verse eight in first Corinthians and second Corinthians, chapter eight, verse nine. And then now again in chapter nine, verse eleven, God enriches us. This is the point. God enriches us. We enrich others. God receives thanksgiving and glory. Charles Finney spoke of grace as, quote, a state of mind that sees God in everything is evidence of growth and grace and a thankful heart. Charles Hodge wrote the doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him and exalt him without inflating him. John Stott wrote grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. And so in verse nine, Paul writes, as it is written, he that's God has dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Do you understand what Paul is doing? He's inviting the Corinthians to turn in their Bibles to Psalm 112, verse nine. In Paul's day, they didn't have chapter and verse. But in chapter 9, Paul is quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. He has dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. The psalmist is referring to sowing seed. The verse describes a man who's been very generous. The psalmist sings a song about a person who sows seed, that is, deeds of kindness, and that specific kindness was directed at the poor. The point that the psalmist makes that Paul reiterates is, what has he done? He sowed seeds of kindness. What has he lost? Nothing. What has he gained? Righteousness that endures forever. In effect, this man was storing up treasure in heaven and the results of our kindness and generosity endure forever. And so what Paul is doing for the person who's having second doubts or doubts about whether or not he or she can afford to be generous. Paul is basically saying, how can you afford not to be? Why? 
Because whatever you have now doesn't have value unless it has value forever. And that's the point. The results of kindness and generosity endure forever. And so Paul writes, now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So Paul is going to once again use the illustration of the sower and the seed. The illustration that he uses is the same God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will give opportunity to show kindness. Paul's logic is going like this. Where does the farmer get the seed? Have you ever met a farmer who goes, I'm going to make my own seed. I'm going to create my own seed. See, you're laughing because of how ridiculous that is. Where does seed come from? It comes from plants. It's the fruit of plants. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the earth and the skies, the the, the birds and the bees, the flowers and the trees. He creates plant life. So the farmer receives the seed from God, plants the seed. The seed yields the grain. People grind the grain into bread and then they eat the bread. And so here's the point that he's making. The Lord will increase the fruits of their righteousness. The same God who supplies the seed for the sower, bread for food, gives opportunity. And that's the key concept here. It's God who gives opportunity to show kindness and reap eternal rewards. That's the point. Furthermore, the Lord will increase the fruits of their righteousness. How? By way of an eternal reward. In other words, it isn't just the reward in the here. It's the reward in the later. The Lord himself will increase their ability to give. And with the increase in generosity will come the increase in reward. And again. Tragically, people have taken advantage of this beautiful picture. By making unfounded claims. Give me a dollar and God will give you back a hundred dollars. Is that what the text is saying? No. If that were true, then every wicked name it and claim it preacher should sow the million dollars that they receive so that they get a hundred million dollars. But they don't. They buy a jet. They buy a plane. They buy a vacation house in Florida. That's not what he's actually talking about. He's not talking about enriching the minister. He's talking about enriching the ministry. In verse 11, he says, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So when he says, while you are enriched in everything, remember, he's talking to the Corinthians who are enriched in everything in what? In grace, in mercy, in kindness, in forgiveness, in salvation, in eternal life. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality. But I'm going to suggest to you that he's also talking that the Corinthians are enriched in physical resources. Why? Corinth was a port city where people would come from everywhere and they would exchange goods and services. This was a, a place where... Where business was booming, so to speak. 
which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Whatever else this means, it must mean that a person never becomes impoverished by giving to the Lord. Paul is in fact stating that every act of kindness doesn't simply have an equal or opposite reaction or reward, but rather that kindness is going to receive a disproportionate reward. Let me just be blunt. Paul is in effect saying generosity and kindness doesn't just simply reap generosity and kindness, but an overabundance, a super abundance of generosity and kindness. Paul is making the bold assertion that the Corinthians would be enriched and blessed and grow in grace of giving and that they, when he's speaking of they, he's speaking of the apostles, would give praise to God. That's what he's talking about. And so we meet needs and bring praise to God. That's what it says in verse 12. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Now think about what Paul is saying. What is your gift going to do? Paul is saying, Corinthians, your gift and the administration of the service isn't just simply going to meet the needs of Of the needy people in Jerusalem who are suffering. If that was all that it was doing, it would be worth it. But he's saying, guess what? It's also going to generate thanksgiving. Remember, remember, why is Paul taking up the collection? To meet the precious, the needs of the precious saints in Jerusalem. What is their generosity going to accomplish? It is going to really meet their needs. What else is it going to do? It's going to result in thanksgiving by those saints to God. In other words, the generosity of the gift given to Paul and the others that are going to be taken to Jerusalem is going to mean that really deep-seated needs are going to be met and it's going to result in a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving on the part of the saints. Now, again, I want you to understand part of the point that Paul is making. Paul repeatedly emphasizes... The value of gratitude and thanksgiving. He's in effect saying anything that results in God being praised and God being thanked. Is this a big deal? Is it important that we live in a world where people go, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Is there something about gratitude that matters? A grateful heart contributes To a great heart and a happy mind. No wonder Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things. I'm sure that there's been different times in your life. Where you've been thankless. And you've been thankful. You've spurned the sacrifice and generosity of others. And you've welcomed it. That the thanks, that, that the grace, the mercy, the generosity of a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a family member, or a friend. Have you ever bowed your head and go, gone, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you moved on a particular person's heart to make a generous and sacrificial gift of some sort. 
That's what he's talking about. Be sure to be thankful. Never let appreciation be taken for granted. But think about, again, what Paul is saying. Paul is, is saying, hey, isn't it enough to know that just your brothers and your sisters in Jerusalem are going to be taken care of? He goes, I need you to think even deeper and wider about generosity. Maybe you know about the plaque in the kitchen. I'm sure that I've said it before. Grandma's ditty. Thank God for dirty dishes. They have a tale to tell. While others may go hungry, we've eaten very well. With home, health, and happiness, I shouldn't make a fuss. By the stack of evidence, God's been very good to us. You look at that pile of dirty dishes and you go, mm, thank you, Jesus. You know, it is hard for, you know, the wife looks at the dishes or even the husband looks at the dishes and goes, mm, look at all those dirty dishes. It really is about perspective. Thank God for dirty dishes. That means you've had food. And so he talks about not just meeting needs and the praise of God, but we demonstrate our deep loyalty to the Lord in verse 13. Read it for yourself. Look what it says. While through the proof of ministry or while through the proof, I think the old King James says the evidence or Experiment. That's exactly right. Here, it doesn't mean experiment in the word that you and I use experiment, like we're, we're, we're conducting an experiment to see how it's going to turn out. But it, it, it's related to that word because an experiment is, in fact, a test. But this is the test that results in the proof. And so the New King James says, while through the proof, which is the right word, of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. Now, for conservatives, when they see the word liberality and liberal, they go, that's not me. It's, it's, it's not talking about political conservatism versus political liberality. It's talking about stinginess and generosity. Moffat translates this. This service, what service? The the service of generosity, of giving, shows what you are, proof. It makes men praise God for the way you've come under the gospel of Christ, which you confess, and for the generosity of your contributions to themselves and to all. I like that. Paul gives two reasons why the Jews in Jerusalem... Receiving this offering will glorify God. Number one, because the givers show obedience to God's word. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. There were some deep-seated prejudices. There were Jews who actually believed that Gentiles really couldn't be saved. That it couldn't happen or that the Gentiles were just pretending to be saved. Now, let me put this a little bit closer to home for each and every one of you. Have you ever met someone who said, I'm saved. Jesus is the Lord and the Bible is true. But nothing ever changes about them. They remain empty and stingy. And selfish. 
Paul is basically saying because the givers show obedience to God's word, he's reminding them that the suspicious and skeptical saints in Jerusalem are going to come to the conclusion. The Gentiles are really saved. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and the Savior, who changed me, has also changed them. Number two, because this offering helped them and all men. The recipients would pray for them and love them more and more. And so the reasons that Paul gives for receiving the offering, he's saying, guess what? God is going to be glorified. How is God going to be glorified? Because the the, the saints in Jerusalem are going to realize that the saints in Achaia, which is the northern part of Greece, in Corinth, have received the gospel and their hearts have been changed, which is evidenced by their generosity. And the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are going to begin to pray for the Gentile Christians in Achaia and and rejoice and say, God, it's true, the Gentiles are really saved. Their hearts are changed. These Gentiles, in an act of sacrificial giving in obedience to you, have taken a little bit less so that we could have a little bit more. And guess what? Now, all of a sudden, love, affection and generosity is generated. What are the other benefits the generous gift would provide to the suffering saints? What proof is provided? The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have to admit that God in Christ has done a marvelous work. It may seem hard to believe again. But they needed a tiny little convincing that maybe something has happened in their lives to really change them. Can you think of something similar in our own culture and society? Not just between the rich and the poor. But maybe old prejudices in the United States of America. Between blacks and whites. I want you to think about it for just a moment. If God changes you in your heart, whether you're black or whether you're white or whether you're brown or whether you're old or whether you're young, shouldn't there be an expectation that something is different inside of that person's heart? And so this is the point. The kindness would go a long way in proving the reality of faith in the life of the Corinthians and the Jewish saints in Jerusalem could praise God and glorify God that the gospel of Christ has reached these people. But also, Paul continues to add to the motivations and arguments. We build and strengthen Prayer and love and fellowship in verse 14. Look what it says. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. What are the other benefits that the Corinthians sacrificial gift is going to provide? Now, the Jerusalem saints couldn't help but pray for the saints in Corinth. Do you know what your generosity has done for the saints in southern India? The southern the people in southern India pray for you. I know because I've been there many times. I have watched the saints in Sri Lanka, in Kerala, in Karnataka, in southern India, in the middle of India, in the northern part of India. I have witnessed the saints 
in India praying for the saints, not just in America, but at Calvary Chapel and at Calvary Chapel, South Denver, as they see the generosity that our, that our church has done. Now, and again, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the generosity of the saints at Calvary Chapel in South Denver who support the missionaries in Mexico, who support the missionaries in New Zealand who support the missionaries who are doing a particular work in a particular place at a particular time. And now all of a sudden the saints gather together in India, in Mexico, in New Zealand. And they go, oh, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Calvary Chapel in South Denver. We thank you for their generosity and their love and their support. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, we pray that they would be reminded of how much we love them and how grateful we are that their sacrificial gifts make ministry possible. That's part of the point. The gift strengthens not just the prayer, but the ties of affection. Do you realize it's almost impossible not to grow in affection For a person who loves you and supports you and prays for you. And that's part of the point. The Jewish saints would long for them. Why? Because of the exceeding grace of God in the heart of the Corinthian believers. And the animosities. The prejudices. The divisions. Slowly melt away. Can you imagine the saints in the inner city of Denver at five points as they pray for the backpacks that are given by Calvary Chapel in South Denver, as we provide backpacks for kids going back to school and needy children and they pray and they go, oh, Lord, thank you for the provisions that you've made through their generosity. They praise God. They glorify God. They glorify the fact that the gospel of Christ has reached out to people. Here's part of the point. The presence of grace in the life of the believer generates, stimulates generosity. And then finally... We praise the Lord for his unspeakable gift. Look at verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul lets out an excited proclamation of praise. How is this connected to what we've just read? What does Paul mean when he describes the indescribable gift? This is one of those times where the original language does become helpful. The word is a compound word. It has a prefix. It has a root word. It has a suffix. It's a word, an, ek, diagatos. It has four elements. A, the alpha privative. You may not know what that means. But what it means is when you stick an A in front of a word in the Greek language, it makes it the opposite. So if a theist is a believer in God, an atheist is a non-believer. If you're a Gnostic, which stands for knowledge, and you're agnostic or agnostic, so if Gnosticism is knowledge and a, you, it's 
means no knowledge or limited knowledge. So here, the four elements are A, Ek, which is out of, Dia, which is through, Hegeomai, which is lead, the verb meant to set out in detail or to describe in detail. And so when you put the word together in all of its components, which is only here, it means that which cannot be described in detail. Hence the word indescribable. It would appear that Paul has come to the end of the section about giving. Yet he's overwhelmed by the thought of the most generous being in the universe, the God who has given the indescribable gift. And so when we attempt to measure things in terms of dollars and cents, Paul says, look, I know you want to quantify the generosity, but how do you quantify Jesus Christ? So Paul is in effect saying that Jesus Christ is the source and the inspiration for all Christian grace, for all Christian benevolence. Jesus is the source of salvation. And so (laughs) when we stop and we think about it, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's interesting to me. Writers are cautioned to avoid hyperbole or superlatives. We're supposed to be stingy with words like magnificent, fabulous, splendid. But in the Bible, God's prophets throw caution to the wind. God's pardon is described as abundant in Isaiah 55, 7. His love passes knowledge or is beyond understanding in Ephesians 3, 19. His gift of salvation is unspeakable. The life of Jesus is in John 10, 10 is described as more abundant. It's interesting to me. Paul uses the term indescribable and then he tries to describe it. So how do material gifts reap spiritual rewards? Paul understands something. That a material gift can sometimes result in a spiritual change of heart. True Christian giving enriches people's lives. It opens resources and the blessings of heaven. And so giving is grace. And grace is giving. And the Christian who understands grace understands giving. Martin Luther summed up his experience of giving this way. He said, I have held many things in my hands and I've lost all of them. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that's what I still possess. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the gospel, the gospel in miniature. It's so simple a child can understand it, yet it condenses the deep and marvelous truths of of redemption into just a very few words. But they're all superlative. God, the greatest lover, so loved to the greatest degree. The world, the greatest number that he gave, the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, 
that whosoever the greatest invitation believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Yay! yay. So Paul repeats several Old Testament principles. Those who honor God with their wealth are blessed. Those who make being rich their passion lose riches and reward. Wisdom gives wealth to needed guidance and instruction. With increased riches come increased complications, and yet money can't buy life's most valuable possessions. So Paul encourages the Corinthians, be ready to give in verses 1 through 5. He reminded the Corinthians of the principle of the harvest in verse 6, the principle of free will in verse 7, the principle of of divine grace in verses 8 through 10, and then the principle of thanksgiving. And now he'll stop. He'll close the book. And he's going to move on as he defends his apostolic authority. He's going to stop talking about giving. And so am I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, if grace brings generosity and generosity brings grace. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women. Who are gracious. And generous. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who think carefully and biblically and often of the people that you placed in our life, of the opportunities that you provided for us. And Heavenly Father, we pray for those people, Lord, that you've entrusted to us. That you've given us the great, wonderful, awesome privilege to provide support and encouragement to our friends in India, to our friends in Mexico, to our friends in New Zealand, to the men and women that you're raising up and sending out to do the work of the ministry. And Heavenly Father, we know that life is often in two categories. The opportunities that we have to give and the sad reality that sometimes we have to receive. And so we begin to understand in the most slight way, in the most negligible way, in the most superficial way, what Jesus meant and what Paul recorded when he said it's better to give than to receive. Lord, we thank you that for most of us, you've given us this awesome, wonderful privilege that we are the people who gets to give. Lord, we recognize that there will come a day when we might be the people who receive. But Lord, we pray 
that in the meantime, that you would grow the virtue of generosity inside of us so that we could be like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.